Zelig, Holy Fool, Trickster, Black Magician, Sociopath, Charlatan, Genius, Fabulous, Junkie, Alcoholic, Secret Agent, Police Informer, Disruptor, Sex Mad Preacher of Love who didn't actually understand love, and a father. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. We've devoted two previous episodes of the Bureau to the extraordinary story of Michael Hollingshead, courtesy of psychedelic historian Andy Roberts, who took us on a crazy trip through the life and times of the working-class hero turned acid evangelist. A man who, according to his own claim, turned on the world. He certainly introduced Timothy Leary, acid guru, and Richard Albert, also known as Ram Dass, along with many other people, including some very famous figures, to LSD. But like many of them, and like many of those who've preached universal love and cosmic enlightenment to the masses, in his private life, he was a terrible mess, a contradiction, charming, vicious by turns. But what is it like to be the child of such a person? What is it like to be a child of the counterculture? In this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture, Child of the Counterculture, we're going to find out. Because we're going to talk to Vanessa Hollingshead, comedian and daughter of Michael, and her writing partner, Jeannie Hilton, in advance of their TV series, The Divine Rascal, intended to tell the story of Michael and his high and very low times. It's an intense and at times dark ride. So be warned. Welcome, Vanessa. Hello, Stephen. And welcome, Jeannie. Hello, Stephen. Welcome both of you to the Bureau of Lost Culture. But uh, where are you speaking to me from? I'm speaking to you from uh, my beautiful Chelsea apartment in New York City. And I am in Athens, Georgia, home of rock and roll. Absolutely. I used to be signed to uh, a record label based in Athens, Georgia. Um, they dropped me, but then I've been dropped by some of the coolest labels in the world. Me too, Stephen. Welcome. Yeah. Um, Vanessa, I gave a little intro to your dad then. I mentioned that we'd had two programs about him before. Um, but just for anybody who hasn't heard those, um, Michael Holling said, of all the figures associated with the history of LSD, there is none more enigmatic. Appearing as if from nowhere, in fact, Darlington in the UK, he turned Timothy Leary onto LSD in 1962 and was influential in Leary's years at Harvard, Millbrook, which we're going to come back to a lot, and beyond. A zealot-like character, Hollingshead became a key player in London's early LSD scene where he established the World Psychedelic Centre in swinging Chelsea. Following a spell in prison, where he dosed KGB spy George Blake, he continued to pursue adventures with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, established a psychedelic commune on a remote Scottish island, created the first electronic I Ching installation, published an underground magazine, spent time in Nepal before dying a mysterious death in Bolivia in the 1980s. It is an extraordinary story, an extraordinary life, full of picaresque, terrifying adventures. But of course for you, you know, he was also your dad right so you know hearing all that said about him in fact hearing those programs how does it make you feel uh there's a part of me that it's so many mixed emotions because um we had such a tumultuous relationship and uh i was i was separated from him at at one years old he divorced he he and my mother separated 
and then he would come back periodically into my life. And he was nothing but good and kind to me. Like, I just remember him being very playful. Playful, absolutely. And, uh, but also uh, rather irresponsible. I mean, Michael introduced many people to acid, to LSD, didn't he? And, of course, you were one of them, inadvertently. But uh, why don't you tell us, why don't we start with that story? He moved me to Millbrook Mansion when I was about, when I was five years old. And he just wanted me to be around the trees and nature and animals and be with him and have a normal life but when i got up to millbrook mansion there was it was hardly normal there was no one remembers this but i remember this because i loved sugar and there was and i didn't have a lot of food there was never food around i was always hungry there was a huge um uh blue cobalt blue vase that was filled with butterscotch candies and it was bigger than i was and i was five and i used to have the candies and I loved sugar and there was no, there was, they would have like, a, I, I just remember because I was a little kid, I just remember seeing feet all over the place because I was always hiding because I was very frightened. And, and I remember there was these, acid was put, put on sugar cubes. So it was in the really early in the morning. And I remember, I don't remember taking the acid. I remember when I took the acid and I went to jump on the trampoline because I was always jumping on the trampoline and there was this big white horse and the white horse used to be like my, uh, used to kind of watch over us. And I would literally jump off from the second floor of the mansion and then jump onto the trampoline and do backflips. I was kind of fearless. There was no one except this white horse like spotting me. So I was jumping up and down and I remember I was with this little boy, Alex. And the next thing I know, uh, I started to see all these fluorescent colored worms and I started screaming for Britta and Britta was my dad's girlfriend at the time. And I started screaming for her and she ran out. I told my dad, I said, look at all the, I said, my nails are getting shorter. Look at the pictures ripping. And my dad was like, oh my God, she's gone to the acid. So my, my dad said, I drove you around the country for about 12 hours. And you kept saying, dad, look at the purple trees swaying in the breeze. And he was so afraid that I would get some kind of brain damage. So he took me to Baba Ramdas, and Baba Ramdas was staying in one of the little side houses. And he gave me a shot of Thorazine in my rear end. And I remember my dad lifting me up by my two legs and trying to make a joke. And then Albert, I saw the needle and I was very frightened. And the next thing I was out, that was it. That's all I remember. That is extraordinary and terrifying. Um, for people who don't know, I mean, Millbrook Mansion, an extraordinary place, really, owned by um, Billy Hitchcock, who was a stockbroker, but he was also heir to one of the largest fortunes in the country. Um, and he was he played the stocks, but he also dropped acid. Uh, and he'd bought this um, huge uh, estate, as we call it, in these countries, um, north of New York City. And it became home to Leary and various other countercultural people as a sort of uh, acid hippie commune. And, um, you know, so Michael was there, he brought you there, and all sorts of things happened there. But just to give us some backstory to that about him and your childhood and your mum, just let us know what was going on already. I was in and out of different foster homes. I remember my mother said, all I wanted was a little girl and, a and your father. And she loved my dad very much. And he was busy being a writer. And she said she'd support the both of them. And she got a job at Oxford University Press. She got pregnant early on into their relationship. 
And he was a womanizer. He was with this woman and that woman, the other woman, and it was very hard on my mother and he was going back and forth. So, and my mother was like, she was smoking pot. She just thought nothing was wrong with doing any of this. And she really wasn't, she didn't have the tools to be a good mom. She was a, she was a little bit of a wild child in her own right. My earliest memories that I remember is just trying to get my mother to pay attention to me, to get my dad to see me. To, and I was like very social. So um, this woman, Big Race, who ended up taking me in, she said, you met my little daughter at two when I was three and I was living in Central Park West. And she said, the only reason anyone in the building got to know you is you'd knock on doors asking people for food. Now I have very little recollection of that. I do remember being hungry all the time. And my mother didn't want me to have sugar because it was bad for your teeth. And my dad could care less. Um, so that's how I got to know the neighbors and they would take me in. There was something in me that knew that there was something the matter with my mother. And then when, when Big Grace came in and her daughter was named Little Grace, she was Big Grace. So she ended up being my big friend and, and Grace ended up taking care of me when my mother moved to Bed-Stuy back in the late 60s when it was a, was a, it was a ghetto. Right. But I mean, Jeannie, uh, maybe you can tell us, how did this peculiar Englishman even get to be in uh, New York? Vanessa's dad came over to America in 1958, 59, when he was 27. And he was like uh, coming over to escape the class system of England and to start his life over to escape his Northern roots. Um, he was working class and he put on that British accent and um, he shows up here and he's literally on a mission um, to find out us Huxley. Uh, and he wants to come to America to be a writer. Um, he doesn't have a job, he has nowhere to go. He's got a duffel bag over his shoulder and he's looking for a place to stay. He ends up staying in the village over uh, in Greenwich Village, right over uh, the jazz joints and the, the, the speakeasies, Jimmy Eiler's showcase. Like, And he's hanging out with the coolest of the coolest at the White Horse Tavern. And that's how he gets to meet Huxley. But then he's like, he's trying to escape this world of England, which is kind of, you know, alcoholic and drug infested and ending up with another world of, you know, Burroughs and Kerouac and that whole scene. And so he knows that he needs to find his childhood friend, John Beresford, who's the his childhood doctor friend from England, who ends up giving him that apartment over uh, at Isler Showcase. And then he, which was like their party den, it was like Beresford's party den. And um, Michael is like, I need a job, I need a job. And Sophie actually uh, was a great jazz musician who's Vanessa's mother. And she ends up being a secretary at Oxford University Press. And so Beresford sets up a way for Michael to get an interview there. Michael interviews, walks in, and he's like, has seen Sophie before in the village. And he sees her again at Love at First Sight. Eight months later, they get on that show, Who Do You Trust, with Johnny Carson. They win like 500 bucks. Sophie's pregnant with Vanessa. Sophie goes into labor, and they win the 500 bucks, and Vanessa's born. What is this uh, Johnny Carson show, Who Do You Trust? Who Do You Trust is the show that Johnny Carson did before it became the Johnny Carson show. 
and who do you trust was they would pit husbands and wives against each other. I mean, it was 1959. My mother was already like almost ready to have me. And my mom was so smart. My dad prided himself on being so smart, but she was actually smarter than he was. And who do you trust is it would either be the husband that would get the, the question or the wife. And my dad kept giving the question to my mother and she kept getting every question right. And they won $500. So it's already getting a bit crazy, isn't it? I mean, your parents have met, you know, fallen in love. Your mum's pregnant with you. They're on the Johnny Carson show, Who Do You Trust? They win it. And then your dad blows the $500 on buying a monkey. I mean, it seems like a harbinger of things to come, right? Yeah. And this, of course, is somehow where it all begins. So he's come to New York and then he gets in contact with Aldous Huxley, you know, famous posh British intellectual living in the States and one of the first people really to start to uh, talk about the effects, write about the effects of LSD, mystical effects of LSD. Um, Michael meets him, talks to him, and then through his friend, the doctor, John Beresford, who is also in New York, um, gets this false prescription, which he sends to the uh, Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, and then they send him all this acid. Huxley recommends that he speaks to Timothy Leary. Can you take it up from there? I mean, he said it was for a, a bone marrow transplant. He gets the fake prescription from John Beresford. He's friends with John Beresford, and John Beresford said, I'll write the fake prescription, but you have to give me half of the dosage. So according to Andy, and then according to my dad, again, there's how much was in it, but when my dad wrote his book, it was a loving spoonful, 5,000 hits. Yeah, he mixes it with sugar and sticks it in a mayonnaise jar, right? And, and then? You know, he takes this acid, goes on the rooftop, and for the first time, life as he knew it in England with his horrible, I mean, his dad was atrocious. I met, I met my grandfather once. I, he was very mean, not a nice guy. But my dad's British grandmother, you know, Edna, was wonderful. She was very sweet, but she was brutalized by the, you know, the the father who was an alcoholic and a rugby player, a semi-professional rugby player. So uh, he gets the acid and I believe he talks to Huxley and it's like, I want to, who do I get this to? Because no one was talking about LSD or the, or in terms of the fact that this can be mind opening, mind life changing, that this was actually a very good drug. So Huxley says, get a hold of Leary. So my dad go, knows that Leary is in Harvard. He packs up and uh, he threatens suicide. And I mean, I was the, we listened to the interview and we were laughing that he, you know, threatened to kill himself with Leary. <laughs> well, I mean, Andy told the story, of course, you know, uh, your dad goes it's to see funny. Leary, um, you know, on Huxley's recommendation. Leary, of course, has been taking psilocybin mushrooms and Huxley believes he's going to be open to the acid experience. But in fact, uh, your dad speaks to him and he's not. And he doesn't really want anything to do with this crazy English guy. Uh, and at which point your dad threatens to kill himself right. if he doesn't see him again. I mean, it's it's to a Brit anyway. It's all quite <laughs> extraordinary. Not as extraordinary, I've got to say, for me personally, yeah. as the fact that <laughs> in response to this threat, Instead of saying, get out of here, Leary says, all right, then, fair enough. You can move into my place. I mean, Jeannie, I think you're going to explain the background to this. So when Leary was 35 years old, he was working at the Kaiser Foundation in San Francisco. He was the first one to begin talk therapy. And while at the same time, he is married to Marianne. The kids, Susan and Jackie, are born. Um, they're uh, eight. Susan is eight and Jackie is five. 
at the time that um, Leary is really making inroads in at Kaiser. And, and it's also think Mad Men of the 50s, martinis flying before Leary had ever done psilocybin. And um, so they're, they're like players, you know, and they're doing like threesomes, like sexual stuff that's kind of outrageous with Marianne, open relationships. And Marianne is trying to, Marianne's trying to keep her head above water and trying to please Leary and, ple- you know, it's really heartbreaking. And one night, and then she finds out that he's actually having an affair with this other woman, Delcy. And one night he comes home from work and it's it's going to be his 35th birthday the next day. And that night it comes to a head. They have a big fight. Um, They go to sleep that night. The next morning, Larry wakes up. There's a note on the pillow. He picks it up. He runs downstairs to the garage. The garage door is pulled down. The car is running and Marianne is dead inside. And he pulls open the garage door. Susan, of course, is there. He tells Susan to run down the road to the um, firehouse, which is not too far away. Jackie is just standing there, little Jackie. Uh, he's just there seeing his mother dead in the car. And um, and it, this was her 35th birthday present present right. to Right, Leary. we're really in, are in the dark side of the counterculture now. So Leary's had this brutal... Yeah personal experience yeah. of suicide so when michael threatens it obviously it triggers something in some, some some panic or some guilt and he welcomes him into his home yeah and michael threatened to kill himself if i wouldn't take his phone calls he was famous for threatening to kill himself <laughs> right so okay so he's but he moves into leary's house and he's in the attic uh, with his jar of mayonnaise and the spoonfuls he turns uh, leary on of course he's also acting as childminder for leary's kids uh, Jack and Susan, and then you and your mum Sophie move in, and how was that? So she hates it. She's like, "You got to be kidding me! I'm not living in this shit hall." You know, my mother was very vocal, and she had an apartment at 410 Central Park West. It was rent controlled. She asked my dad to help out with it. It was 122 dollars on 100 Street in Central Park West. Those apartments now go between four and six thousand dollars a month. So my dad said, I don't have any money. All you want is money, Sophie. So Sophie asked Tim Leary, can you please help us? I, they'll, we're going to get thrown out. We're going to get evicted. And Leary said he didn't have the money. Now, as I began to read and research, I realized that uh, Leary probably did have the money, but he was constantly giving Michael money. And now when it was kind of desperate for me and my mother that we were up at the time they they changed all the laws but the laws were if your father was able to support you if you had someone that was able to pay then you didn't have to be on welfare right but uh, so you'd moved into the leary household uh, your mom hated it so you move out again and we're going to come back to your uh, next adventures in a minute but uh, meanwhile Leary and Alpert um, who were at Harvard professors after all uh, they're going to get into bad trouble aren't they they start dosing or giving students LSD there's some sexual improprieties uh, it comes to the, comes to the attention of the authorities they get sacked and then they set on this countercultural journey with the if if foundation and uh, communes and all sorts of other stuff right and they got thrown out of Harvard for their drug activities they set up IFIF, which was like two blocks away, and they got all all the these funds from different people to set up this kind of free society. So Peggy Hitchcock was was working as a secretary for Leary. 
and they had no place to go, no place to, they didn't know what to do. So Peggy Hitchcock said, get a hold of my brother, Billy Hitchcock. And there was this 64 year old sprawling Bavarian mansion that was just, you know, getting dusty. And they said, that's how they ended up going up to Mulbrook Mansion. $500 a month rent for a 64 room mansion. Right, so stockbroker slash LSD advocate himself, uh, Billy Hitchcock lets them stay in the mansion. They set it up as this kind of acid, commune countercultural experiment as exotic animals and exotic guests all sorts of people coming there what was michael's role in this then uh, genie michael was the known as the best trip guide of all time um he literally is why he was there that's why he was everywhere and he became the best trip guide of all time and leary couldn't do without him because and he learned how to be the best trip guide doing all the experiments the prison uh, project the marsh chapel experiments and then just taking it on his own taking 200 hits lsd on his own and leary brings michael because he needs michael to guide these trips like leary would be so like hey man yeah this is going to be amazing this is going to be mind-blowing like he had that serious american quality and this is where Michael had that British kind of, well, you know, we're going to, this is going to be a lovely ride. Just all relax. I will take you here and don't take anything too seriously. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to follow this long road and you're going to find who you are. Like he just had this devil may care attitude. And for whatever reasons, if you were on a bad trip or a good trip, you felt safe with Michael because he didn't have that serious American, you know, your mind's going to be expanded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. He was like, all right, well, now you're going to keep traveling to this long maze and you're going to see who you're looking for. And oh my goodness, there's a big mirror. It's yourself. You know, see, he was like the, and Leary was like the Magister Ludi, the glass, glass bead game, Herman Hess. He came from psychology. Michael came from like the College of Hard Knocks. He was always the outcast, but he was always clever. He was always a showman. And he always actually loved the underdog. He always told me, treat royalty as family and treat doormen like they're royalty. And you'll never go wrong. That was his advice that he gave me. Right, and this came out very much in uh, my interview with Andy about your dad, is that he had this extraordinary faculty facility for being a... Uh, somebody who could guide others and of course you know a sort of foil yeah foil to Leary's pomposity Uh, Leary you know the sort of pseudo mystic uh, with these very controlled trips you know all these stages and and the white light experience basing it on the Tibetan book of the dead you know all very very sort of serious whereas Michael with his kilt and bouncing on the trampoline uh, is like a Loki character, like a trickster, a sort of archetypal trickster, who's bringing in this other right. fun element to it as well. And also, you know, despite all these other f- faults, is able to be very reassuring <laughs> and uh, and kind to people, um, you know, right. who are going through often very intense, dark experiences. You know, I mean, my own experiences in this front, you know, it, it is rather wonderful to have somebody there to uh, be on your side, as it were. Right, so, okay, so... That's Michael's role there. What happens next? Leary was trying to get back into the good graces at Harvard. So they set up, they had all these, you know, major professors from Harvard come there. My dad told me this story. Uh, They're talking, they're taking acid, they're reading the paper. 
you know, he puts food dye in his mouth and he's talking. So, and then they dyed the eggs orange and the oatmeal black, the milk black. So they're talking and they're like, um, so you're noticing the effects of the LSD? And he's smiling and the green food dye would come down. This was all planned. It was always this tongue in cheek, devil may care kind of, you know, foil. And Leary with his all, you know, I want you to be mine, expand. You know, Michael, I don't think took it as seriously as he should. While at the same time you're hallucinating on LSD and you're having distortions and your perception is all screwed up, the idea with Michael was like, what is real? You know, like, let's really look at what is, like, is tripping real? So if I do this thing with the food dye and, you know, put Arnie Hendon, who was a famous artist hanging out at Millbrook doing these incredible installations with Michael um, with the uh, light and sound and film, um, the, these guys were like pushing the envelope to really get people. All right. You think this is real? What really is real? What really is, uh, who are you? You know, what are you meant to do in this world? Like, and that's why when he would take, he would guide them on these long trips. Yeah. And also he was responsible for these, you know, these experiments in alternative theater and light shows and all sorts of rather wonderful stuff too right yeah uh and of course there were some very famous visitors andy warhol, andy warhol uh yeah. charlie mingus I threw, an apple at him. I threw an apple at charlie mingus i didn't um i didn't like him staring at me so i threw an apple at him and he ends up chasing me all over Melbourne. <laughs> so you got charlie mingus andy warhol lots of other famous people and uh, the great and the good uh, are not so good turning up to tune in turn on and drop out etc uh michael's sort of head guide you know head trickster um it's not what most parents would think is an ideal uh, place to bring a child but not michael he decides to bring you here doesn't he and what was that like i just remember everything was burgundy i remember this huge burgundy everything was like the, every, you remember things as a child where you see feet and I remember like a huge staircase that was gigantic. And I remember after I'd taken the LSD, I snuck down to a phone and I called up my mother. I was frightened. I knew something had happened. I didn't know what it was. And I called up my mother and my mother arranged for a cab, a taxi to pick me up. And it was early in the morning when everyone was sleeping. How I knew to get out of there, I don't know, but I had a just knew to get out of there and i remember the taxi just driving off and my mother was very concerned that i might have gotten some brain damage but when my mother knew that i didn't know what had happened i said mom something i had a really weird dream i blah you know i saw pictures ripping and picture and she was like oh my god you got into the ls you you got into that acid how irresponsible your father was while she's saying like she was completely if there was anything the matter with her and there was cockroaches everywhere and you know she just was clueless um because she i remember she told me she's like i like a good bag of grass i don't go for in for all that hallucinogenic shit i took acid once and that was it i don't need that crap so she thought she was you know the well responsible you know, the, mother you know she the responsible mother, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, a pre-acid or even post-acid, uh, your time there, what, have you got any other memories, maybe some, uh, even some happier memories uh, rather than that stuff? There was cats. I just remember spending a lot of time with animals. And I remember there was this little girl that came up there and she was like a couple years younger than me. She had like this whole lacy outfit. 
And I remember trying to put her clothes on because I had just a pair of red tights. There was no food, there was no clothes, there was no nothing. And I remember when this little girl came up that I was trying to put her clothes on. I just felt lost. And that when I had the animals, I was okay. And I begged my dad to get me a bunny. This is really painful to talk about. He got me a bunny for Easter. And I remember I was so happy to have something to love. And I remember I hugged the bunny so hard that I killed the bunny. And I was beside myself because I didn't know. I felt like uh, no one taught me how to hold things, how to love things. But I just love this bunny and I, I killed it uh, by accident. And my dad was very forgiving. He was like, he was, I mean, this is where he would be like, oh, Vanessa, you didn't know. It's just loved it. You, you know, I, I should have explained. I mean, he, but for me, I carried that guilt around for the rest of my life. Ouch. Ouch. Um, okay. So, you know, your mom takes you away. Um, Millbrook itself carries on, I think for several years, actually, um, without you there. But then suddenly... There's all these rumours around Michael, whether he's an FBI informer and stuff like that, but he certainly, he sort of leaves and seems to leave in a rush and heads over this way across the Atlantic to these shores where all sorts of other adventures happen. But do you remember that time? All I know is my dad said, because I said to him later on when we got reunited, I'm like, how could you leave me? Just leave me. Like, leave me and my mom. How could you do this? And he said, you know, I had 24 hours to get out of the country. 24 hours to get out of the country. And I don't know if it was immigration. I don't know if it was the CIA. I don't know if it was the FBI. And he got out of the country and went to England. And that's when, you know, none of this, I mean, all this is stuff I read was, you know, they handed him 200 copies of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They said, go start, you know, go finish. Psychedelic manual. Psychedelic manual. Just finish where we left off. And they just wanted to get rid of Michael. He was drinking, he was crazy. And, you know, that's when Larry said, well, that writes off 10 years of the, you know, the revolution. And they were laughing. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, Andy talks about this is that they were obviously trying to get rid of him in a way. And I think maybe not really thinking that uh, anything would come of it, even though I think Leary gave him these copies of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Of course, what they didn't realize that he had uh, 10,000 doses of acid hidden in a bar of soap. And of course, when he gets here and gets involved with the world, Psychedelic Center, he has a pretty massive impact, of course, because he introduces some very famous people to acid, including the Beatles. Well, well, Paul McCartney. And Paul McCartney got the LSD to John right, Lennon. Right, right. And, of course, uh, musical history, if not countercultural history, was made. Meanwhile, you're back in New York, and I think years go by, don't you? And he, all sorts of other stuff. He leaves London and goes abroad and all sorts of other things, and then goes to Scotland, and um, and you guys reconnect. He found me. He said that he hired he hired a private investigator to find out where I was. Now he was living in Cumbrae Island at the time. He started and he was trying to get these poor Franciscan monks to go take LSD and start the Free High Church of Cumbrae Island. And I didn't know any of this was going on, but Myra Coppersmith was supposed to get me. She was seeing my dad taking LSD. She's going back to the United States. And he says, just get my daughter. Just find my daughter and bring her to me and have her come live in Cumbrae Island. Can you imagine me in Cumbrae Island? What was Cumbrae Island? Tell us about it. Oh, Cumbrae Island is where my dad set up the Free High Church. And he became an actually ordained Franciscan monk. <laughs> and 
He was, yeah, all the monks were taking LSD. And for yeah. Cumbria Island, this was this sleepy little town and off the coast of Scotland that was, you know, everyone was like, what the hell, what, you know, what's going on with these, with these monks? He met Myra there, and I don't know a lot that happened in Cumbria Island. They said, I'm now living with Big Race. You're a foster mom. I got, my mother has now moved to Bedsty, Brooklyn in the 70s. She's been beaten. She's been raped. Our apartment has been pillaged. Uh, I've been brutalized. It's a nightmare. I've missed six months of school. I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I'm a mess. So Big Race from 410 Central Park West says to my mother, I, you know, my mother says they're going to put Vanessa in a reform school. She's been six months of school. We've decided, our family has decided to take Vanessa in. So my, so I remember screaming, crying, begging my mother to please let me go. And she's like, no, no, you belong with your mother. I'm like, mom, I can't live like this. And then Myra shows up. I'll never forget meeting this woman. She's like, I met your father and she, he just wants us to be together, and I want to introduce, and I want you to come to Brooklyn. Now I'm this kid from New York, now living in Brooklyn, and we're getting close. And then all my dad wants—he's got my address now. He's found me. He's located me. All he wants me to do is get Myra to get me on a plane to Scotland, to to Cumbria Island, or at least to. And she says to me, "Your dad." has got a side to him that's very mean. I want to take care of you. I'm going to take you to this commune for the summer. So we go up to Dawes Hill Commune. Big Race loved me. She didn't want me to leave. And I just started school. And I was now in fifth grade. By the time I got to fifth grade, I was a, you know, an A student, which Jeannie will talk to you about when we talk about children from that period. A student, beloved by all the kids, loved my home. Whatever reasons, the way my personality was made up, I just felt, let me get away. Let me go where one person really will maybe be like a mom for me. So she has me come up. We move. She goes, oh, I want you to pack up all your things. You're going to move to to Ithaca and live on this commune. I'll be your mother in this, you know, Jeep with the ohm sign on. And she's got no bra, see-through shirt. Like, you can't be any more hippie than you get. And I remember being in the basement with Big Race and Gracie, and and they were all we're all trying not to cry. And I said, "But my Barbie dolls? No, no, you don't need dolls, just clothes." And I remember I had to leave everything behind. I packed up two garbage bags. I get up there. I'm thinking, "Well, I'll have the mom I never had, or she'll take care of me, and life will be good living in this country thing." What do I know? And within three weeks, they ask her to leave, and they have me stay, and they never tell. They never tell me that I, they asked her to leave. So I assumed that I thought she wanted me. She never wanted me. So they never told me this until about, you know, several, until years later. And Myra never told me. She ends up converting to an Orthodox, Hasidic, Jewish, moving to Israel. I don't know any of this till years later, when already the psychological trauma has been done where i just thought again unwanted but other than that i'm a happy comedian i'm doing just <laughs> right so but i mean you do get reunited with your dad right now i'm at the commune i'm trying to fit in all the kids i gotta I, I you're talking to a little girl from brooklyn i'm now learning how to chop wood take care of milk goats plant pot plant peas live in a yurt by myself, everyone's smoking pot, sleeping with each other. 
I don't know what's going on. I used to, my dream was when the parents of the hippies would visit, they'd be like very, oh, we brought the bologna, we brought the white bread. Oh, what are you doing? No, we got some clothes for you, went to see us, got this for you. So that was my joy. So I was now going to this Newfield High School, Newfield Junior High, trying to fit in. And then a letter comes from my dad saying that he's going to come visit the commune. So my dad is now with this woman, Oriel, and Oriel was the daughter of a vicar. So my dad gets up there, and he all hell breaks loose. I ended up taking psilocybin with my dad. We tripped together again when I'm 13. He's now at the commune with everybody. And of course he takes credit. He's like, you know, because of, because of me, you have a commune. Because of me, you are all enlightened. Because of me, uh, everything is the way it is. And if anybody, I remember he goes, if anybody goes into my fucking yard, I will fucking kill you. Fucking, you all, you fucking cops. <laughs> fucking shits. That's, that's how he talks to me. I mean, it's sort of terrifyingly comical, isn't it? Um, uh, but of course, you know, he's self-described as the man yeah. who turned on the world. I mean, he, he, he was not shy yeah. of, uh, of proclaiming his own uh, contribution to counterculture, was he? But it, so in this case, he's claiming also that, he, uh, that it was his idea, the communes and, and that whole counterculture stuff was also his idea, uh, at the same time not acting very communally. By the Poor hippies are like these American. they're like this, they're terrified. <laughs> absolutely stunned by this English guy. And they were like, okay, man. Okay, Michael. Okay. Like, I remember them being terrified. And then um, my dad and I take this with, the, with Oriole. We end up taking hallucinogenics. We're tripping our brains out. I remember taking it and, like, I remember it was raining on the commune and the raindrops would turn purple and then they'd burst into things. Now, the playfulness of my dad is we're listening to Magical Mystery Tour. I'm living there. He's there three months. And then he says to me, he's like, listen... Uh, you have your choice. You can either live at this commune, you know, uh, or you can move with me to Boston. If you if you live at the commune, you'll never see me for your... I will never have anything to do with you for the rest of your entire life. Now, it's up to you. You decide he, what you want to do. He didn't do things by half, did he? So he threatened to either kill himself, kill you, or if you didn't come to Boston at his command, uh, you'd never see him for the rest of your life. Either you move to Boston with me and go to school and get educated, or you'll never see me for the rest of your fucking life. Um, please decide what you want to do. So what did you do? I went to Boston. <laughs> and I graduated high school at 14 and a half. So a bright a kid? Yeah, no, I was very bright. And again, my dad was drinking at the time. This is when things started to get really bad. I'm living in Boston. I'm so happy to be with my dad. I'm with Oriel. My dad is now with George Litwin, Gunther Weil. We stayed with Gunther Weil briefly. So Gunther Weil, another psychedelic experimenter. And I was excelling in school. I was talking to my teachers. But at the time, his drinking and his violence began to escalate. He was beginning to beat up Oriole. He would beat me up. He would punch holes in the wall. And unfortunately, I didn't know about alcoholism to that extent. He had no recollection. He would get violent. There'd be a hole in the wall. I'd have a black eye. She'd have a black eye. He would be absolutely, I, I, what, what happened? What happened to you? I'm like, uh, well, you did, no, I didn't. I mean, he couldn't, had no recollection. So that was kind of the beginning of the end. And Gunther Weil had hired him. I remember meeting Timothy Leary again with his newest wife. I can't remember her name. And they were all trying to make, get things together. But my dad couldn't 
stay sober more than a day or two. Was he still doing was he still doing acid at this time or had he moved on? No. No, it was alcohol, hashish, pot, um, maybe some amphetamines, but it was no. There was no more those days were kind of gone and they were done. Yeah, but he's still in contact with Gunter Weil and uh, Timothy Leary and all those people, right? They were now getting straight-laced jobs. They were all now very well-to-do professors and psychologists, and they hired Michael. And Michael couldn't, he couldn't do the job. So Oriel was holding down the fort. Oriel was working for them and michael was just at home drinking and oreo was trying to keep everything together to get me through high school so i could graduate she already decided it was over she didn't want anything to do with michael she ended up losing her mind you know when she got back to england she ended up having a mental breakdown wandering the streets of london completely naked and then she eventually you know i mean she left him she said i loved michael but i couldn't be in love with michael after what had happened to me with him but i wanted to see you graduate so she kind of became like the sacrificial lamb in a way. Right. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, we've got to cycle forward uh, right the way up until his death, really, quite quickly. But um, so you stayed in contact with him sort of intermittently, didn't you, down the years, even though you were apart a lot of the time? Yeah, I was always in contact with my dad. I always loved him. He was so difficult. And this is when he threatened suicide. Like he got me. This is, again, where he does the good thing. He helped encourage me to do acting. He helped me believe in myself. Um, I remember when I was living in England with him, I had to get a job as a, I wanted to be an actress and I had to get a job at the, at the um, New End Theater and right above Hampstead Heath. And I was so petrified. And my dad said, you know, you need to just let everybody know what, what you want to do. You've got to be sure of yourself. I'll come to the interview with you. And he came to the interview with me and he said, and he arranged the interview. He said, hello, yes, this is Michael Hahn. He said, my daughter, she's just, just an extraordinary actress. She's willing to do stage managing work. She's, oh, she's there's nothing quite like her. I mean, you, you must meet her. I mean, that's how, he's like, oh, oh, well, all right. Well, well, yes, would you? Thank you. What day? Yes, thank you. We'll be there. So he sets all this up. I'm sitting there like little, you know, I'm like 15, 16. By the end of it, I, I get the job, you know? So that's the amazing thing Michael did. They just believe in yourself. So now my dad and I, my dad's living with this woman, Eileen Kelly, who's just a mess, just a, just a complete mess. She's a complete mess. And then he ends up living with her. I'm with Big Race. Then I go off on my own. <clears throat> and then Michael is calling me, threatening to kill himself when he gets me this apartment on 159 Mercer Street, gets me this flat that he stayed at. And he said, if you don't take my phone calls, I'll kill, I'll kill myself. And meanwhile, I'm paying for the calls collect. And I'm like, and I, I call up Big Race. I'm like, I don't know what to do. He keeps threatening to kill himself. And he's staying with John, with Ken Kesey. He's now, uh, Esther is born. Esther is my sister. Esther. And Ken Kesey was the famous Merry Prankster, another big sort of figure on the counterculture acid scene. And uh, Everelda was his late, Michael's latest partner, right? Everelda is living with him in California. Um, is living with them in California and she's like, I've got to get away. This guy, he's they're drinking around the clock. They're going around Mulholland drive. They're crazy. She leaves. He threatens to kill himself. He's now got no Everilda, no Esther, no me by himself. And I call up big race. I'm like in a panic. I'm like, what? I, I don't know what to do. And big race said, you know what? Better to mourn for him than live with him. So tell him, you know what, Michael, you want to kill yourself. 
why don't you just go kill yourself? Just go kill yourself. I'm like, what? She's like, you know what? I think he's crying wolf. Just tell him, go kill yourself. So I told my dad, he's calling drunk. He's like, I just, I'm just going to go off the fucking bridge. I'm like, you know what, dad? Maybe you should just kill yourself. And the phone went dead, quiet. He never killed himself. Big Race was right. You know, it's sort of grimly fascinating, isn't it? You know, Andy Roberts, you know, described your dad as a sociopath. And, you know, you've said that you agree with that. And, of course, so, you know, despite the positive uh, qualities that he had and, you know, your love for him, um, he did exhibit those characteristics, didn't he? You know, classic sociopath characteristic, doesn't respect social norms, lies, deceives others doesn't make any long-term plans, shows aggressive, aggravated behavior, doesn't consider their own safety or the safety of others, doesn't follow up on personal or professional responsibilities, doesn't feel guilt or remorse for having harmed or mistreated others, uses human intelligence or charisma to manipulate people, has a sense of superiority and strong opinions, not learning from their mistakes, not being able to keep positive friendships, attempting to control others, getting into frequent legal trouble, performing criminal acts, taking risks at the expense of themselves or others, becoming addicted to drugs, alcohol or other substances, and threatening suicide without ever acting upon those threats. But he did die uh, in Bolivia under somewhat mysterious circumstances. So tell us, Vanessa, how did it all end? Cut to 1984. I get a call, he's in Bolivia now, and I'm getting letters from him, he's getting thinner, and he used to write voraciously, he used to write all the time, tiny, now the, the handwriting is going sideways and I know something's the matter. And I'm 24, he's 54, so or 53, going on 54. So he's screaming, and then the next thing I hear from Brian Kelly, who's Eileen's brother. Eileen Kelly's previous partner. Uh, she, he says that, you know, I'm sorry, but your father's dead. I'm beside myself. He brings over, he goes to Big Race. He brings a, a picture and he goes, you know how much your dad loved you? I'm like, well, I'm not sure. He goes, your dad, all he did was talk about how proud he was of you, how much you did, how much you accomplished, how like, and then he sends, shows me this, this picture from daddy, how proud he is of me. So I didn't know how much my dad loved me. It was Brian that said that. So he dies, and then a few months later, Big Race dies. This is 1984. And 1985 was the beginning of my life changing and me having losing two of the most important people in my life and kind of restarting my life. And in 1991, I became a comedian. And then in 96, 97, uh, 96, I was to form my relationship with Jeannie, a partnership with Jeannie. Right, great segue, um, because Jeannie, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, the context of this, these children of the counterculture. I mean, we know that some of them, some of them at Millbrook had uh, wonderful times, didn't they? You know, sort of magical fairyland, Alice in Wonderland type times. And of course, you know, lots of uh, great stuff came out of that era and out of those uh, kids and their parents. But for others, it was a sort of much darker experience. And, you know, it's a bit like being, I suppose, the son or daughter of somebody who's famous. You know, you share that person uh, with the world. And, you know, that person might be very good at preaching love and preaching enlightenment and all those things. But in person themselves, in terms of their own personal life and in terms of their own family life and parental life, they're actually toxic and completely irresponsible. 
that this was an era touted as the revolution of peace, love, understanding, freedom, finding God, spirituality. So this was all so new. No one's talking to their patients and saying, hey, what's going on with you? This was never the approach. It was just a cookie cutter kind of approach. And so no one, Leary is developing this whole new language, but he on the inside and probably from his own genetic trauma, from his alcoholic father and his the suicide of his of his wife and everything going on with him he was an abysmal caretaker family man father um he's so busy turning on the world telling everyone to tune in turn on drop out love everyone universal truth while at home he's like jackie his youngest son is in jail over like six times in the Poughkeepsie jail up in Millbrook because Leary refuses to cut his hair for him to go to school. And then they're like, you got to cut his hair, you got to cut his hair. And there's all these like articles of Leary refusing to cut his son hair, putting his kids in harm way, harm's way all the time. They're all tripping at Millbrook. I mean, Leary, they would he they were using the kids as experiments to take the LSD. Jackie and Susan. And I think, you know, psychotic break along again with genetic trauma and the suicidal isolation that Susan had previous with her mother killing herself. She ends up shooting her boyfriend in the head. Just He does not die. And they put her in jail. And there's an article there at the actual LA Times post of Leary, of Susan, um, Susan's death, Susan hangs herself in jail. There's actually a part in the article where Leary is like, I have no complaints how she's being treated in jail. They're treating her very well. It's like, what planet are you on, dude? I mean, so I think there's this disconnect, you know, of these flower children of the uh, uh, Leary and the ones running all of this and how this perpetual need to um, stay a child and not take on social responsibility with this insane uh, blind ambition to be someone, to have a name, to, you know. And so the these children were just the, the byproduct and lost. Lost, you know, right, yeah, absolutely. So it's a very mixed story, isn't it? And of course, looking back from 2021, and um, it's possibly uh, easy to see that time through rose-tinted spectacles. And of course, they're, looking back now, there's also a lot of uh, awful things about it too, a dark side to the counterculture as well as the light side. I think I mentioned to you before, um, I spoke to Adrian Lang, who was the son of R.D. Lang, who kind of rather forgotten though but actually in the 60s he had a parallel sort of evolution to Timothy Leary he was a medical practitioner a psychiatrist in the UK Scottish actually and uh, he became known as the anti-psychiatrist he developed various theories around schizophrenia by the way I think a lot of his theories there's something quite wonderful about them and and expanding mind expanding he, he also uh, carried out various experiments in communal living involving acid as well uh, and he evolved you know from being a kind of fairly you know sort of establishment practitioner to being a guru you know with the beads and growing his hair and you know the sort of sitting in the half lotus position surrounded by acolytes and and uh, taking drugs and stuff 
Um, you know, but Adrian, you know, saying that again, you know, Lang's main thing was family relations. You know, uh, his psychiatry and psychology was about that, and yeah, in terms of his own family relations, uh, he, you know, he was quite—he was just quite toxic and difficult. You know, Adrian talks about same thing. You know, also having to share your guru father and your guru father's perception in the world with the reality of somebody who's, um, you know, absent and aggressive and alcoholic. So, um, you know, cycling back, you know. Some had a wonderful time and some, like Vanessa, didn't. It's, it's, it is a mix, is it not? It really is. And it's like, you know, you read about some of these kids, like um, Maynard Ferguson's daughter, uh, Lisa Ferguson, has a beautiful um, film out where she talks all about, I mean, she loved Millbrook. You know, her experiences at Millbrook were like fairy tales and medieval times and the biggest takeaway out of doing all of this and really looking at other children of, of the children of the revolution is how absolutely determined they were to not become their parents. Right. So, but at the same time now, now at like that, they're turning like 60, 50, 60, 70, there's this wanting to return you know, plant some pot, you know, raise my grandkids, like, you know, so it's really interesting. Um, And then the other thing, too, that I find really amazing is sort of the women of the time. And I found this amazing quote that was like, yeah, they're all out starting the world's next fucking revolution. And we're all sitting home fucking making supper. Like that really like, you know, and because the truth is, a lot of this was for convenience, you know, like let's have a commune and we'll just get a group of people to raise our kids. Cause we don't know how to raise kids. We're 20 years old having kids, you know, I mean, I think about me at 20, what, you know what I mean? Like that. So I think, I think there's a lot of that. It was very convenient for a lot of these men to have a lot, a lot of people around to um, raise the kids too. And then they could just do whatever the hell they want, get as high as they want, get as, you know, screw as many women as they want. The commune that Vanessa was on at Dawes Hill was also a commune, though, where my friend Francine told Vanessa that it's like, this is actually, though, where you found your voice, where you were able to figure out what she liked and she didn't like. Um, You know, uh, she discovered Clockwork Orange. She discovered how to make people laugh. She discovered how to sew. She discovered so there were some really great things that came out of the commune. Yet at the same time, uh, a lot of these guys up there at Dawes Hill were draft dodgers too. You realize that's where they started if they didn't want to go to Vietnam. So there's a very there's all different levels, degrees, you know. Children and women being, uh, you know, making the food, kids taking drugs at up to five years old, them deciding what's right and wrong at five and six years old. Yeah, I mean, it was an experimental time, wasn't it? But a lot of those experiments, you know, you can see now, they're actually incredibly naive. And whereas some of them actually, you know, proved to be sort of genuinely disruptive and, you know, uh, bring about some real social change, others just seem you know, really rather foolish, don't they? And I think it's interesting from the point of view, of, as you say, about the men, you know, because okay. in some ways it really, yeah. really it suits the men best, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Particularly if you say that the women are doing the cooking and doing the washing up and maybe taking care of the kids to an extent whilst the men go out and do the interesting stuff. 
and a certain kind of man it's sort of trapped in a kind of eternal adolescence sort of peter pan existence which is quite attractive in young people but less attractive i think in older men be why i don't take comedians <laughs> right so um let's let we, we have to draw to a close let's go full circle with michael so i mean you know acid of course it is an amplifier and uh you know it did amplify those two sides of his personality you want to call the sociopathic and all that stuff that he inherited from a brutal childhood uh and then you know the positive side too which you have talked about you know you did experience all that he was uh, a true trickster in that sense wasn't he and able to give you confidence and uh, you know help you along your way to an extent right i never heard the word no and i never felt like i couldn't that i would never not succeed if i just believed it believed in myself like he put that in me and the other thing that this is what's heartbreaking about my dad he when michael believed in you he would just like if michael if you said i want to do a podcast you know I was like, oh yes, no, you must, you must, you absolutely must, Stephen. There's nothing like this yet. You must, you absolutely <laughs> fucking let's let's have a like because the country is fucking lost, Stephen. You're the only one. You're from the north. I'm from the north. Fuck them all. By the time he's finished, you'd be like, yes, no, I think I will. I think I will. Have I'm this. ready. I'm gonna go change the world. Right? Of course, I have to be your first interviewer. Of course. <laughs> well, listen, I I trust. I know I know that he had a problem with not being remembered, uh, but I trust he'd be pleased at least that he's on three episodes of the View of Lost Culture. As it should be. I'm sorry, I'm dead, but as it should be. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, Jeannie and Vanessa, you have this project to bring the Divine Rascal to the screen. I mean, it's an incredible story. His life is this sort of picaresque, crazy adventure. And of course, you know, the culture around it and Leary and Ram Dass and Millbrook and all that other stuff. Uh, uh, it's an amazing story. I'm looking forward to seeing it when it gets to the screen. And Vanessa, looking back, you know, um, over that picaresque life and your extraordinary time with your father, Michael Hollingshead. I mean, what do you feel now? Forgiveness and profound love and respect. And we've gone, come full circle. And I remember being at the steps of Harvard with him and he wanted me to go to Harvard University and he could have gotten me in. He said, I'll, I'll get you in, Vanessa. I will get you into Harvard. I know all the right people. And I said, no, dad, there's going to be such an emotional price tag. I'm going to have to pay for you helping me out. I don't ever want any of your help. I'll figure it out on my own. And my dad said, you know, one day, Vanessa, my name will make you some, will make you famous, will make you known. It's going to be my name. And I remember thinking, don't be my name, not your forgiveness, my love for my respect, everything I became because of my father and all the understanding and all the addiction and problems I suffered with. All my dad wanted was to be known that I was the guy that gave Timothy Leary LSD and, and, and made this possible. And all I wanted was his name to be cleared. And in maybe clearing his name, Jeannie and I together have created a series that will be most, that will be memorable, will be wonderful, will be funny, and will also be, in a way, the truth of what went down. Well, thank you. I think we just about did it in time. Just me and you, Stephen. You can edit Jeannie out. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's got me. Well, well, I was thinking about editing you both out and just having me. That's very Michael of you. Well, I got rid of them and I kept the major beats of the story, which was me talking. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jeannie and Vanessa. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having us. It was a pleasure. It was really a pleasure. So, phew, there you have it makes me realise that my childhood was very tame indeed, thankfully. Well, to find out more about Vanessa and Jeannie's film project, you can check out www.thedivinerascal.com. You can check out our previous episodes about Michael Hollingshead and all our other shows at bureauoflostculture.com and at all your favourite podcasters. Subscribe, leave us a review if you like. I'm Stephen Coates, this was the Bureau of Lost Culture. See you next time.